you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. There's blue ones around the corner of the room if you wanted to snag one of those. We're gonna be in Matthew 13, verse 24, starting in verse 24. If you've got our blue Bible, that's on page 478. So before, before we dig in to this, um, I did wanna acknowledge this one. I just kinda wanna give a, a, a disclaimer a little bit. I wanna give an acknowledgement and encouragement. Jesus this morning is gonna use some language for us that in our current cultural climate, just where we find ourselves is not normal and it's not typically acceptable per se. You know, in this cultural age where we wanna be like seen as culturally savvy or relevant, there's just certain things you don't talk about and Jesus is gonna just steer us right into those this morning and not, you know, just not pull any punches. So we're gonna see that and I think when we do that, when we read these things, immediately there's this tension that rises in us just due to where we are and just some cultural baggage with this stuff. We're gonna feel that, and that's okay, that's totally cool. But I wanted to call attention to where Jesus is in Matthew when we find him here. So he's not proclaiming judgment over people. He's not looking at cities and calling out judgment over them. He's actually standing in front of crowds and crowds of people and teaching. He's inviting them in to consider his words. And over and over in this passage, Jesus is gonna use this language. He's gonna say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's not some sort of mysterious phrase that we're supposed to pick apart and dissect. It literally just means, if, do you have ears on the side of your head? If you do, you should use them and listen to what I'm saying. It's, that's, that's the call. He wants us, he seems to think that what he has to say is extremely important for us, and we ought to think it is too. So. Um, if we can make a little bit of an agreement before we read the text and dig into it, um, when we feel kind of that awkward tension of, I don't really like talking about these things, let's feel that, but then agree to just kind of check that at the door for just a little bit, and then to keep an open ear to what Jesus might be inviting us in to consider. Is that cool? Can we make that deal? All right, we're going to read the text now, because in the nine, I just didn't read the text, and that's very, very important, so hold me to that. Um, all right, we're going to be in Matthew <laughs> chapter 13, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go out and, and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. No, let, let both grow together until the harvest and at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So that's the end of the parable. Jesus is gonna explain this for us down in verse 36. So jump down there. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the, the parable of the weeds of the field. I love that. They're just like, we don't, we don't get this. Can you please let us in on this? He answered them. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. 
The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. No big deal, right? Nothing controversial, nothing difficult. It's Jesus for us here in Matthew 13. Thank you. Um, No, for real, I'm stoked about this. Before we dig in, I wanna lay the groundwork a little bit for this concept that we see here. It's this idea of two kingdoms that Jesus is putting forward, two kingdoms. So if we look at our immediate context here in Matthew, what do we see Jesus talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's bringing parable after parable, metaphor after metaphor, to try to get people to understand what the kingdom looks like when he brings it. He's been beating this drum over and over again. If we zoom out a little bit further and look at just Jesus's whole message about himself in the first place, what do we see he's talking about? It's this concept of the kingdom of God. He thinks, I am bringing the kingdom of God. If you and I showed up on Jesus's doorstep at any given day, this is what we would have seen him talking about. So in Mark, we see this over and over. In Mark, right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he kicks it off with these words. He says this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's like it's right in front of you. Repent and believe in the gospel. So repent, it's a super loaded word, right? It's a lot of baggage attached to that word. Most literally, what repent means is you're going one direction and you need to stop and turn around and go the other direction. You're heading a certain way, stop that and go another direction. That's what repent means. And then he also says, believe in the good news. Believe in the good news. Specifically, he says, believe in the gospel. But what that literally means is good news. So we hear that, you and I hear that 2,000 years later, right now in this building, believe in the gospel. What do we hear? We hear the whole story, right? Like Jesus came from heaven. He lived on earth. He died and he rose from the grave. And then he ascended back into heaven and paid for all my sins and I'm good with God, right? When we hear gospel, that's what we hear. My question is, the people that are hearing this immediately in Jesus's context, is that what they're hearing? It's not, right? Jesus is still alive. He's walking around. He's teaching. He claims he's bringing the kingdom, but he hasn't died yet. So for the people that Jesus is talking to, when he says, believe in the good news, what is the good news that they are supposed to be believing in? It's what he already said, right? I'm bringing the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. I'm bringing it. So turn from whatever you think life is and come to me, attach yourself to me, and you will see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is getting at in his words. So if we follow Jesus around as he begins to to walk in this and bring it and flesh it out, what are we going to see it looks like physically? So we're gonna see Jesus reaching out to all people, no matter what their social or economic status is. He just doesn't care about those lines. We're also gonna see him like raising dead people to life, healing the sick, providing for people. 
But beyond that, he also takes the time in his ministry to like withdraw and be alone with God and seek out God. And then he's like teaching his disciples to live in the same way and to pursue God in the same way. So there's this moment where a lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, what, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? If you remember what he says, what he, the way he answers is basically a just snapshot summary of what kingdom life looks like. You remember what he says? He says, love God with everything that you have. And the second, the second thing is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That these two things together are the greatest commandment. And that people who are in his kingdom live like this. That's the kingdom lifestyle. So those are our two. So that's the kingdom that Jesus says he is bringing, right? I think the impl- implication within this that we don't even think about a lot, but we're gonna see it in this parable, and we see it a lot in the Bible, is that there is already another kingdom that Jesus' kingdom is now breaking into. Jesus' kingdom is breaking into an already established kingdom. So right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's driven, like he's anointed, and then he's driven out into the desert, and he's tempted for 40 days straight, right? You guys familiar with the story? So Satan comes to him, he's just trolling on him, five weeks straight, temptation after temptation. And then at one point, he hits him with this one. In Luke 4, it says, the devil took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. So Satan comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, this world that you are dwelling in right now, it's mine. It's been handed over to me. I control it. I pull the strings. I set up people into power. I rule this place. That's what Satan says to him. In Matthew and Mark, later on in the Gospels, we're going to see Jesus is talking about this world, this present domain, and, and Satan's role in it. And he says it can be compared to this like big household that's ruled by this strong man. So think of some, some jack dude who rules this house. And Jesus comes and he says, I have come to bind that strong man and rob him blind. That's what Jesus says he is bringing. Paul picks up this language in Ephesians 2, and he's talking to Christians right here. This is a little bit long, but pay attention because it's important for the rest of our time. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a language that Paul uses. So we see that we don't find Jesus, we don't find ourselves in some sort of neutral territory that Jesus' kingdom is now just kind of subtly invading, but rather a domain that is controlled by an enemy. It's a kingdom that is defined by sin and death, and it is one that you and I are both unwillingly born into. Like, we, we have no control over that. We just wake up one day, we're born here. But at the same time, we willingly participate in it. You and I love the ways of this world. We love the stuff of this world and we perpetuate the ways of this world. We see both of those things. 
So these are the two kingdoms that we've got on our hands right here. Does that kind of make sense? You guys with me still? Awesome. So one thing that we're gonna see in this parable that we've already read is that while there are indeed two kingdoms, it does not always look like that from our vantage point right here and right now. So look back at your text real quick. Um, verse 24 and 25, I'm gonna move this sucker up here. I had this whole thing this week as I was prepping for this, where I was gonna like draw out this big dramatic story that was gonna like place you in a wheat field, try and get you there to visualize it. But I don't have to now because we have a visual aid here. <laughs> this is Muriel Wasby's handiwork. She's awesome. She's been walking through this with the kids. And so she had this laid up and ready to go, reached out last night and was like, would, would you like to use this? And I was like, visual aids, OMG, yes, please. <laughs> Thank you. So this is wheat, in case you couldn't tell. Before we, before we talk about that, um, let's look back at verse 24 and 25. So get your eyes on the text. If I can find it, where it is. Kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Does anyone have a little footnote on weeds, like a little number? Raise your hand if you do in your Bible. Okay, you wanna volunteer what it says, anyone? Don't be shy. Yes, oh my gosh, audience participation. Thank you so much. So. So yeah, that's what it says. If you, I think most of your Bibles might have this, might not, anyways. But what it says about these weeds is that specifically it's called Darnell, which is a wheat-like weed. Darnell, can we just acknowledge that that's a great name for a dude? Like, I, we're all thinking of that, Darnell. So when we hear Darnell, acknowledge that sounds like a guy's name. We're, we're gonna keep moving, anyways. Um, okay, so we learned this about Darnell, right? So this is actually super interesting and very, very important for context that we find ourselves in, right? So Darnell says it's a wheat-like weed. Specifically, it's this weed that is sown and in its early stages of growth, it looks exactly like wheat. It is completely indistinguishable from wheat. You can't go out and pick, it, pick out the difference. However, later in its development process, it, it starts to grow straight up into the air and turns this blackish color. Whereas wheat, as we can see right here, turns this awesome, nice golden brown color, and then it kind of starts to droop to the side a little bit, right? So this isn't actually Darnell, but it is an awesome stand-in. So it starts to grow up later, it gets darker, and it just shoots straight up above everything else. Does that make sense? Do you guys see this? Got the visual aid? I'm now going to bring it down here. Yeah, shout out Muriel, that's awesome. Okay, so knowing this, right, this is incredibly important for our context, right? Helps us to get our bearings here a little bit. So what, what happens is we see this, this field is sown and the servants immediately are like, once stuff starts coming up, they're like, something's up with this. We don't think that this is all wheat. We're gonna go to the master about it. So they come to him. They're like, hey, didn't, did, you, sowed, you sowed good seed, right? What is up with this other thing we got going on in the field? The master acknowledges it. He says, yes, yes, somebody has come and sown weeds in my field. It's not my doing. That is not my work. That is the work of somebody else. And what do we see the servants do in that moment? In all of their wisdom and quickness, they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So we're, we're just gonna go ahead and just pull all the weeds out now that we know that there's weeds in there. That'd be great. We'll just pull them all out. What does the master say? He's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. 
It's not the right time. What will happen is you're gonna pull up all of the good wheat in the process. We're just gonna completely lose everything. What's the solution he puts forward? He says, wait, let them grow up together. And then when the harvest comes, that's when I'll tell the reapers to go out and make the distinction. That's when I'll do it. Knowing what we know about our boy Darnell, does that make sense? Yeah, it does, because later on in the process, it is so much easier to tell the difference. Darnell has started to grow straight up and stands out like a sore thumb, whereas all of the wheat is together in this nice golden brown bundle, okay? So the, the master looks at that day, and he says, that, that's the day that I'm gonna make the distinction. Let's wait, let all the wheat stalks grow up, even if there are weeds in them, and then on that day, I'm gonna send the reapers out and they're gonna make the distinction. And here's what I think Jesus wants us to take away from this. It's that right now, you and I in this present age and from this present vantage point live in this world of entangled kingdoms. There's two kingdoms right here at play and they're all intermixed with one another. So if we think about this, we, we, you and I live in this world that is broken. It's hard to argue that it isn't. There is death, there is sin, there is oppression, there is violence, there's all of this. That's the world that we find ourselves in. This kingdom reigns. And yet at the same time, we are here this morning because we know and believe that Jesus has broken into this world, into this domain, and brought the kingdom from on high. And we see him take on flesh, live, die, and rise up and say, hey, this kingdom is on its way out. I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven. And he rises and he leaves. And then after that, we've got, what, 2,000 years of just that continued broken history, that if you and I just kind of snapshot, take a glance at it on any given day, does not look like the kingdom of God is here at all. Just turn on the news. I mean, it is so easy to see. We live in this world right now of intermixed kingdoms where the kingdom has come and arrived, but it is not yet here in its fullness. And I think this parable is just straight up acknowledging that that is the case and asking us to to consider that. However, the hope and the warning of this parable is that while this is true right now, it's not always gonna be the case. Just like in the parable, there is this coming harvest day that the, the, the wheat and the weeds will be separated out from one another. So Jesus says that there is a coming day where the two kingdoms that are now intermixed will be separated out clearly. A day is coming. And all the, what the kingdom of God comes and all of the stuff of this other kingdom, the sin and this brokenness is cast out forever and all the people who have given their allegiance to it along with it. That's the language that he's using right here. And I think that can be hard for us to hear, but I want us to consider this morning that Jesus seems to think that's good news and that we should think that's good news too. So if we take a step back again and we look at the entire storyline of the Bible, what are we gonna see? We're gonna see that in the beginning, God creates everything that there is and he creates it all in this perfect goodness, right? God makes and he calls it good and he makes and he calls it good and at the end he steps back and says, this is very good. I am pleased with this, what I have done in this. And in this goodness, we see man and God dwelling in this perfect unity. 
How long does that last? Two pages, right? Two pages in the Bible. That's all you get of this. And then something happens. You see, in the garden, this mysterious enemy, the snake, don't get a lot about him. He shows up and he gets, God, gets man to disbelieve God and to disobey the one command that he has laid out. And they do it. And it's out of this decision and out of this rebellion that all of the stuff of this world's kingdom flows. Sin, death, enmity, and hostility between man and man. The very next story in the Bible is a man killing his brother. All of that flows out of this decision. But in that moment, what I want us to pay attention to is how do we see God respond? Does he look at what has happened and say, oh, this went bad fast. Let's just scratch it. Scrap it, start over from scratch. I'm gonna nuke it all. We're gonna try again. Is that what he does? No, he continues to love and remain committed to the goodness of his world that he made. And right off the bat, he implements this plan by which he is going to redeem and reconcile that back to himself. Right off the bat, he does this. And that's the storyline that Jesus sees himself as fulfilling. He picks up that language and he says, I am here to bring that. That's what the kingdom of God looks like, is me stepping into that and bringing it. But the moment that you and I kind of broach the subject of heaven and hell, there's that tension that rises in us. And I feel like we are swimming upstream to try to reclaim some really bad misunderstandings of these things that have just become entrenched in our hearts and just our society at large. So if, if you're like me, your kind of default way that you think of heaven and hell is that they are some sort of end game reward and punishment destinations, right? Like, I think the vast majority of people think Christians believe something like this, that I live my life and I try to do the best I can with it, and I try to be cool with God, and then I die and I get to heaven, and if I know heaven's secret password, Jesus, then I'm allowed into heaven, and I get to go float on a cloud and play a harp forever or something like that. On the flip side, if I don't do that so great and I'm not cool with God and I don't know heaven's secret password, Jesus, then I don't get in and I get cast off into the fiery pits of hell forever. That's kind of a caricature, but I feel like it's not that far from what a lot of us think of when we think of heaven and hell. And I just want us to see that Jesus and the authors of the Bible seem rather to teach that heaven and hell are both present realities that you and I are in right now, at least in some degree. So Jesus, we see this in his life. Jesus looks at the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and he sees how they turn access to God into this endless list of extra rules and do's and don'ts. And he looks at them doing that, and he said, you guys are sons of hell for doing this. And when people believe you and follow you, you turn them into more sons of hell. That's the language Jesus uses. In James, James is talking about our tongue and its ability to both like breathe life and speak life and goodness into people's lives and uplift them, but also its ability to shred and tear down and bring destruction into a situation or into somebody's life. And James says that when we do the latter, when we do this one, you and I, our tongue is set on fire by hell itself. That's the language that he uses. And it's like when you and I choose to speak destruction into somebody's life, that is hellish in nature. 
what he's communicating. If you think back on Ephesians 2, what Paul just led us through, uh, we see that Paul thinks in the same way and, and says that's how we used to live before we knew Christ. So in Jesus and the apostles' minds, hell is what you and I unleash on earth when we just fully give ourselves over to what is natural to us. So it's natural for me to hate my enemy. It's easy to do that. It's natural for me to wanna speak destruction into somebody's life that I disagree with. It's natural for me to wanna use my sexuality however I wanna use my sexuality. It's natural for me to wanna bring some in and exclude others. And it seems like when you and I do this stuff that is natural to us, they're saying that it's like we're opening up this little window of hell into the world around us. That's the way that they tend to think about it. So the hard but encouraging word of this passage is this, that God as the good creator of a good world in his sovereign wisdom has allowed that sin and brokenness to have reign for a time, but he will not do so forever. Just like God, God remains committed to the goodness of his world and as the righteous judge, he will come in and get the hell out of his world. It's what he's committed to. So I want that to sit with us for just a little bit because I think Jesus wants that to rest on us. But I wanted to end specifically, not looking at that, but rather looking at the way uh, these two places, these two destinations per se, are described. So if you, get, if you still are open to our chapter, look down at um, verse 42 and 43. We see this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's the one side. We have the sons of the enemy. It says they're cast out, but I wanted to focus specifically on the way that place is described. So we see it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I feel like weeping is pretty easy for us to understand. It's sadness, it's mourning, but gnashing of teeth, that's one of those weird Bible phrases that we just read and just gloss right over. It's really easy as well. Just think like grinding your teeth, gritting your teeth. So everywhere we see this used in the Bible, we see that it communicates uh, and is associated with extreme anger and intense opposition towards something. So Stephen in, Acts, in the book of Acts, right before he's about to get killed for talking about Jesus, the, it says the crowds are around him and they're enraged at him and they gnash their teeth at him. And then they pick up stones and they murder him. So it seems like whatever hell is, it seems to be defined by this type of sad and bitter anger and resentment. Whatever hell is, we might be better served to think of it not as some sort of inescapable burning dungeon, but rather as a contained space of willful and continued rebellion. C.S. Lewis communicates this idea when he says that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. It's the idea that he's getting across. So that's the picture on this side. Contrast that with the way that the sons of the kingdom are described. So if you look down in our, in our verse, it says that after all of the causes of sin, all lawbreakers are cast out of the kingdom and far away, what is the result that we see? We see it says that the sons of God in that day shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The language Jesus is using right here is, is from Exodus. 
So Moses takes the people out of Egypt and then he, he goes up and he dwells with God on a mountain for 40 days. And then when he comes back down, his face is just lit up, radiant. And it's so powerful that it actually terrifies the people and he has to cover his face with a veil. That's how powerful it is. That's the language that Jesus is using right here. That's the idea he's trying to pick up and get us to link with it. It's this idea that you and I were made to reflect the image and character of God in his world. And on the day when all of the stuff that hinders us from doing that is finally removed and cast far away, in that day, Jesus says, you and I look like the sun. We rival the sun in its radiance. That's how bright we shine. We're finally stepping into fully what you and I were made to do from the outset. So that's, that's the picture for the sons of the kingdom. And what do we do with all this is kind of the question. And how does this tie into us being a church for the city? And most simply, I really think that Jesus is inviting us in as his people to get our eyes up and to see the world around us in this way. If you're like me, I feel like most of us are just locked right and tight on today, what is important for me right now, the people that are important for me right now, what is going on, and I think that's good. I think we need to be present where we are, but Jesus seems to be saying in this parable that our present vantage point is extremely small and very entangled and confusing. And so if we live there, if we have our heads stuck there constantly, we're gonna miss out on the fact that Jesus is calling us, in, us into a story that is eternal in its scope. We have to be reminded to get our eyes up to those things. And secondly, I think this really, really deeply changes the way that we view every single person around us, that every single person you come across was made to live forever. Everybody you meet was made with dignity and the ability to know God and to communicate him and reflect him out into the world around us. So Jesus comes and he brings people that are dead in that category to life. And then he empowers us as his people to go out and be these agents of reconciliation in this age until he comes back. That's the legacy that we're a part of this morning. And C.S. Lewis puts this extremely well in his book, The Weight of Glory. Listen up to this. This is awesome. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror or a corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other along to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That's, that's the way C.S. Lewis puts this. 
As we continue in this series as a church, we're gonna step into some practical ways that we begin to do this. But I think this morning, our first step is that we need to have eyes to see the people of our city around us in this way. So that's my heart for us this morning and my encouragement is this is a city of people that will live forever. It is, it just is. We need to be a people that lay down our lives and our comforts to bring this kingdom. The same way that Jesus sheds and puts off his godness to come down and infiltrate our world, we now come in and infiltrate and bring the kingdom into this city. That's the, that's the role that we are given. So maybe you're here and this is all just so weird and you don't know what's up with this Jesus guy. You don't know where you land on him. And, and even in spite of our disclaimer at the front, you're still hearing this and thinking that, that sounds weird and pretty judgmental still. And for you, I just wanna remind you once again what Jesus is doing right here when we find him. He's compassionately standing before thousands and saying and teaching them, inviting them in to consider whether or not his view and the things he says about reality are true. But even, even so, this morning, if you've, if you've heard these words of, of being cast out and that causes like fear to rise up in you, I wanted you to hear these words of Jesus last uh, before you head out from here. This is in John 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's what Jesus says. I'll never cast out he who comes to me. So if that's you this morning, I would just echo Jesus's words here. There's a, there is this coming day, we believe that that separation will be made, but as far as I can tell this morning, it's not that day yet, it has not happened. And that invitation remains wide open to anyone and everyone who would come and listen to Jesus and accept and just know him. Full sonship, complete forgiveness is yours. It's the offer on the table this morning, all you have to do is come. As we end this morning and move to a time of, of communion as a family, I've got kind of two ways that I, I would hope we would respond. First, if you are a, a member of Ethos or a part of Ethos and you know Jesus and you're walking with him, I would just encourage you this morning to consider in the same way Jesus is trying to get our eyes on eternal, unseen realities, that's exactly what we do this, why we do this every Sunday morning. These are tangible physical reminders that we take of unseen eternal realities that are true for you and I in Jesus. In you and I, the kingdom has come, it's for sure, and it will be brought in its completion. These things are the promise that Jesus gave of that in our lives, why he told us to take these week in and week out. So as we move to that time as a family, dwell on that, trust in that, consider that, and thank God for that. If you don't know Jesus and you would like to know more about him, you felt something tugging in your heart this morning, I'm gonna be hanging out at the back. Joshua will be and another team of, of people who are gonna be back there. We would love to meet you and to pray with you and to find out where, what your story is and, and show you or kind of talk with you about what it might look like to take this next step into following Jesus. We'd be happy to do that. So uh, I'm gonna pray for us this morning. We're gonna 
get up and go take communion. And um, yeah, Jesus, thank you this morning for your words. Even when they're kind of, they're hard to hear, they're not something that we woke up thinking we really need to go in depth and study on, and yet you love us enough to tell us things that you think are important for us. So I pray this morning that we would consider your words, that we would have an open ear, and then beyond that, Jesus, that we would have eyes to see our world and the people around us with this eternal lens. And Jesus, for those who do not know you this morning, I just pray your spirit would come and flood hearts that do not know you and show your goodness, that you would bring people in who have not known you prior. And Jesus, we just open up this time to you. Do whatever you want within it. We love you. It's your name I pray. Amen.